Good morning. Hope you all are well this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you have one with you. If not, I think there's probably some in the backs of the pews there. I'd love for you to open it with me to the book of Titus. The book of Titus, chapter 2, and in just a moment we'll read verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Do you remember what you used to do when standing in line or waiting for someone before we had smartphones? You remember what that was like? I recently read uh, an article about this and they kind of humorously talked about some of the things that us old-fashioned people used to do before we had smartphones when we would be waiting for someone. Maybe we were waiting for them to arrive at a restaurant or maybe we were waiting in line or whatever the situation was. And they suggested things like this that maybe we've forgot about, but maybe we need to be reminded of. We would do something like smile politely at others while they did the same thing back at you. It's a novel idea, huh? Perhaps we would read the newspaper that was tucked under our arm that we took with us in case we had a few extra minutes. Some of you young people, you even know what a newspaper is? Perhaps we would covertly eavesdrop on those around us in the conversations they were having. You ever remember that? You probably wouldn't admit to it, but you know you love eavesdropping too. Perhaps we would actually meet the stranger that was sitting near us, waiting as well. Perhaps we would just be alone with our thoughts. Or perhaps most fearful of all, we would do nothing. Nothing. This last week we drove home from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, We were seeing family over in Tennessee and we... um, we were on the way home, and of course our kids love to do things in the car that deals with electronics, but there was a certain time when Abigail, my daughter who's here this morning, said, uh, we said, we're not going to watch any movie, we're not going to uh, play on the iPads or anything like that for the next little while, and she said, well, then what should I do? I said, nothing. You should do nothing. You should just look out the window. Enjoy God's creation. I must have looked like a three-headed monster to her. It was like she had no idea what I was talking about. Of course, I'm being a bit sarcastic, but you get the point. Our culture has, in so many ways, stripped waiting. Stripped longing out of our lives. So when we get to a season like Advent, which really its focus is waiting. Yes, it it climaxes in, it culminates in Christmas, in the incarnation, in the celebration of it. But I think we, we forget that for those that waited for the Messiah, there was a long period of waiting. And we we don't have a lot of concept of waiting anymore. 
Let me ask you this. Have you ever got to the Christmas season and someone will say, hey, can you give me a, a, a few ideas of what you would like for Christmas this year? And you have a hard time actually coming up with something because anything that you would have longed for during the year, you already got for yourself. It's hard for us to imagine what it must have felt like to have longed for something. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yesterday I was watching a documentary and in the documentary they talked about an interesting statistic. In 1790, around the time of the birth of our country, 90% of Americans worked on farms in order to feed the country. Today, less than 2% work on farms. One of the things that's universal to farmers is they, they understand the concept of waiting. They understand that when you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't immediately come up. You have to wait. You have to let God do what God can do on that seed through the conditions of the soil and the sunlight and time. This is just one example of so many examples of our of our culture and our society having stripped away our understanding of what it means to wait and long for something. But the culture and the society cannot strip away the Christian's understanding of what it means to long for the return of Jesus. If you don't long for Jesus to return, There is something wrong with your relationship with Jesus. If you can look around at this world and see the chaos and the mess and the hurt and the sin and the brokenness and not long for Jesus to return, perhaps you should, when you get home today, read the last chapter of Revelation and see how it ends. When the Apostle John writes this, Come quickly. Lord Jesus. This is how our Bible ends. This is the Christian's longing that Jesus would return. Yes, we understand that God is tarrying, that He has not sent Jesus back to return a second time because He longs that none should perish, that there are still people from every tribe and nation and tongue that need to be brought into His kingdom, but that doesn't take away our longing. When you get to a passage like Titus, chapter 2, you get a hint of this longing. But the thrust of the passage is not the longing itself. It's what do we do in the meantime? Are we just supposed to be about nothing? What's supposed to happen while we long and while we wait for Christ to return? Let's read it together. Then we'll make a few observations about it. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people 
that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Most of Titus up to this point has been about doing. In fact, chapter 2 up to this point is really Titus being instructed about how to teach the different groups of people in the church that he was pastoring. What are we supposed to do with the older women and the younger women and the older men and the younger men and those that are in positions of power like masters and those that are in not in positions of power like slaves? How are we to teach them to live the Christian life? But when you get to verse 11, he kind of changes gears. And he gives us the why. He's given us the what first. Here's what you should teach them. You get to verse 11, and for just a brief moment, he gives us the why. And then he goes back to the what. But I don't want us to miss the why. Before we get there, though, look back at verse 11, and then we're going to look at verse 14. Excuse me, verse 13. And I want you to see how this text is bookended. Because sometimes authors in the Bible, they do this, and if you're in the habit of reading your Bible on a regular basis, which I hope you are, sometimes you can look for these bookends, how they pop out, and and you can see how the author is drawing your attention to something. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. It's appeared. The word in the Greek is where we get our word epiphany. It's appeared, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Then skip with me down to verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Why is it that He says this twice? Why is it that He draws our attention to this idea of appearing? Well, He wants us to see that there's really two appearings. And for us that are saints after the New Testament, that are followers of Jesus after the New Testament, we look back at the first one, right? The gracious appearing of Jesus. When grace burst onto the scene in the person of Christ. But we look forward to the glorious appearing. When Jesus returns in all glory to establish His kingdom and to live with us forever, to dwell with us forever. He wants to draw our attention to these two appearings so that He can say, here's what you should be about in between. And He uses this phrase, the present age. So, what is it that we're supposed to be about? Well, if you're taking notes, you can say the first point is this. Christians are characterized by transforming lives. Look again, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So, God's grace, it appeared in the person of Jesus. And God's grace continues to teach us through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, well, what does it teach us to do? It teaches us to say no to certain things, and it teaches us to say yes to certain things. Well, what is it that God's grace teaches us to say no to? 
teaches us to say no, according to verse 12, to ungodliness and worldly passions. Well, what is ungodliness? Ungodliness is anything that does not match the revealed character and expectations of God. So how do we know what God is like? Well, He's told us in His Word. Did you know that a good chunk of Scripture is not dedicated to telling us what to do, but dedicated to telling us who it is that has the right to expect things of us. It tells us about God. So how, do you want how can you get to know God? How can you know who He is, what His character is? You can read about it in Scripture. It's revealed. Well, not only His character, but His expectations. We know that God has expectations of us. Now, we also know that our meeting or not meeting His expectations is not what saves us or doesn't save us. But the expectations are still there. God says several times in the New Testament, Be holy as I am holy, which is directly taken out of the Old Testament. The Bible is clear and consistent from the beginning to the end that God expects us to be holy, set apart, people that are for Him. We belong to Him. So we say no to ungodliness. Not only that, but we say no to worldly passions. These are cravings and longings and desires that are motivated by the world instead of motivated by the Lord Jesus. Is it just me, or do you have to battle with your longings and your cravings and your desires? I'll just speak very uh, secretly. We won't tell anybody outside of here, all right? But all of us long to sin sometimes, do we not? We long to do the things that we know would not please the Lord Jesus. And growing up into our salvation, in one sense, is learning to deny those longings and to nurture the longings that the Holy Spirit has given us in Christ. We're starving one set of longings and we're feeding another. This is what it means to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. The world would have you long for all kinds of things that doesn't please the Lord Jesus. How do you know how to discern? Again, you spend time in God's Word and you see what He says. But not only does the God, God's grace teach us to say no to things, it teaches us to say yes. It teaches us to say yes to things such as to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Three verbs. Self-controlled, upright, godly. The idea of self-controlled is just to be sober-minded, to be in your right mind. That's a process. We find that out in Romans chapter 12, that our minds are being renewed and transformed. This does not happen overnight. Upright lives. This is proper according to Jesus. Just and righteous. We know what these things are. We know what Jesus expects. 
I bet the gap between what we know and what we do is fairly large. So many of us, particularly those like me that have gone to Bible college, we we long to know more. When I wonder if sometimes God, through His Holy Spirit, is whispering to us, you don't need to know more, you just need to do what you already know. We know those things that put a smile on Jesus' face. So how do we know if this transformation process is happening? Well, yes, in some sense, we'll, we'll see. But let me suggest two things. First, commit to taking an honest inventory of your attitudes, actions, and reactions to others in this world. What is it that you say yes to? What is it that you say no to? My pastor growing up used to say something like this, if you'd give me your checkbook and your day timer, I'll be able to tell you what you love. And it's pretty true. You can say you love things all you want, but if your schedule and your pocketbook do not say that, chances are you're not you're not fooling others. You may be fooling yourself. But people know. And for those of us that are parents, we can say we love things all we want. But if our kids do not see us actually investing our time in our yeses in those things, guess what they'll learn? We don't actually love those things. What is it that you love? Commit to taking an honest inventory of your loves. What is it that you love most? It is true that what you love, you will become. It's rarely what you know that shapes who you are. It's almost always what you love that shapes who you are. So what do you love? God's grace is teaching us if you will listen how to say no and what to say no to and how to say yes and what to say yes to. It is a process, which is why I say Christians are characterized by transforming lives, not transformed. If you are sitting out there today and you are saying, I have been transformed, that is in one sense true because you have been transformed completely, sanctified by Christ at the moment of salvation when you were justified. But in another sense, you are still growing into that transformation. You are still in need of further transformation and renewal. And no matter how old you are, if you believe you have finished that process, you are sorely mistaken, and you should spend some additional time in God's Word. So what should I do when I realize the gap between what God desires and the reality of my life? Because if you commit to taking an honest inventory, what you will run into is a block wall, and that block wall will be named... Oh, my lands, I am not quite as put together as I thought I was. I'm still in need of major transformation. So what should I do when I hit that wall? First, you should thank God that you are saved by grace and not by your works. Second, you should repent of sinful patterns and priorities in your life. Misprioritization is perhaps one of the greatest sins of American Christians. 
making good things into God things, elevating them above what God and the place that He has in our lives. Third, commit yourself again to God's Word and submitting yourself to it. And fourth, pray for more of God's transforming grace in your life. It is grace that teaches the Christian. It is grace that transforms us. It's not fear. It's grace. Christians are characterized by transforming lives. This is our job description. In the meantime, while we wait, while we long and hope for Christ. Christian transformation is motivated by God's grace. We've already talked about this, but look back at verse 11 because I want you to see this. It's very important. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It. What is the it? It's God's grace. It. God's grace teaches us. What is it that motivates a believer to long for the right things and to deny the wrong longings in his or her life. It's God's grace. If you are being motivated by fear, whether that's a fear of what others will think because they think you're spiritual and you know you're not quite as spiritual as others may think you are, whether it's a fear that your children will not turn out the way that you hope they will, Whether it's a fear that God won't accept you because you're not far enough along in the transformation process. I don't know what the fear is, but what I do know is that fear is a potent, short-term motivator. It does not have the power to motivate you for the long term in the same way that God's grace can. Think about it like this. Think about the child who grows up fearful of their parent, their dad or their mom. Fearful of what they'll think. Fearful of how they'll react. Fearful of what they may do if the child messes up. What happens when that child leaves the home? It's not usually good, is it? But then what happens to the child that feels constantly loved, unconditionally loved, not not disciplined, but unconditionally loved, cared for, secure. Over time, generally speaking, those children want to please their parents. They want to live up to the expectations that their parents have. Why? Because love and grace are much, much more powerful motivators than fear. So let grace, let God's grace then be your teacher. Quit submitting yourselves to the teacher of fear. It's not only God's grace that motivates us, but it's God that gets the credit for our transformation. Transformation, being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, is the Christian's job description as we long and wait for Jesus. But as we see God doing this in us, and as we see God doing this in others, let me stop for just a second and say this. If you see God working in someone else, don't keep it to yourself. Share that with them. 
What a blessing you could be this Christmas season if you would take a few extra moments and write out a card or an email or text and just say, this is the way that I've seen God working in your life this past year. Are you an expert at seeing the evidences of God's grace in others' lives? What a blessing and an encouragement you could be to other followers of Jesus if you would grow in your ability to see the evidences of God's grace in other believers' lives? What if there was a culture at Green Pines, maybe there already is, where people just naturally and instinctually were sharing on a regular basis, here's how I see God working. Here's, oh man, I've just seen God shape you through this very difficult circumstance. And I praise God for what I see Him doing in you. Did you know that the things that get celebrated usually get replicated? If you will celebrate those things that you see God doing in others, you know what they will want to do? They'll want to do more of them. Sometimes that's how God uses. God could use you. So, but when we see that, when you see those evidences of God's grace teaching others, or when you see it in yourself, wow, God really has taught me, and perhaps... God, I can see, I can look back in the past at a particular circumstance and I can see that God grew me and now I'm going through another another difficult situation and it's not quite as hard. And I'm more dependent upon the Lord and I have more joy in the midst of the trials. And so I praise God, I can see the fruit of transformation in my life. What should I do? You should give the credit to God. You should give the credit to God. I want you to look at this real quick. Count the number of references to God as we read back through this passage real quick, okay? For the grace of God, one, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, two, and Savior, three, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, four, for us to redeem to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself, five, a people that are his, six, very own, eager to do what is good. Six times in five verses, God refers to himself. Who gets the credit for our transformation? Who gets the credit for us waiting well? God gets the credit. From beginning to end, he initiated the process. He continues the process, right? The grace of God teaches us, not taught us, not past tense. One time he gave us a big block of teaching. No, no, no. He continues to teach us. He initiated the process of transformation in our lives with the moment of salvation. He continues that process in what we call sanctification or continual transformation. And he will complete the process. This is what he tells us in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. This is when He'll complete the process, when He returns again and we are glorified and the earth and all that is in it is renewed and restored and God establishes His kingdom here for all of us to live with Him in eternity. Do you realize the lengths to which God has gone to dwell with His people? First in the tabernacle, or excuse me, in the Garden of Eden, and then in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, and then in the person of Jesus Christ, those of us that are in Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, 
and then eventually in the new heavens and the new earth. God desires to dwell with us and will someday. So, this takes us to the end, God completing the process. But we live in between. And so we long. And we wait. There's an interesting phrase in James chapter 1. I won't have you turn there. But it's been a phrase that's been on my mind and heart for about the last three months. Over and over again I've read it and it's something that I never noticed before. I'd encourage you to perhaps look at it sometime later. Here's the phrase. Let perseverance do its work. I think as believers we understand that waiting and longing actually has a role in our growth in Christ. But seldom do we want to let it do its work. Let this time of waiting and longing, this season, even for these next four weeks for Advent, let perseverance, let the longing, let the hope, let the waiting do its work on your heart. See if God doesn't use that to grow you encourage you and deepen your longing for when the world is once again as it should be and you are once again what God has intended you to be. In the meantime, we wait. Amen? Amen. During our invitation time this morning, you'll see the chest here. This is for the Lottie Moon offering. I would encourage you. Wow, what a blessing to be a part of the Southern Baptist heritage of giving to a a Lottie Moon Christmas offering every year, I would encourage you to participate this year if you're at all possible. Let's pray.